Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name this morning. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in here. I pray, God, that you would give us hearts to hear, a mind ready to listen to your word, which is our life. To your word, which reveals who you are, declares from generation to generation your redemptive plan. Your word, which is the light of our life, it lights our darkness. It is the light of lights. And so, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would empower me to minister the gospel of Christ. For your name's sake and our joy in you, I pray. Amen. I need my glasses. I tell you, man, getting old. You know the song by uh, Mick Jagger, what a drag it is getting old. My gosh, can't believe it. Never had to wear glasses in my life, and now I've got to wear glasses to read. <clears throat> um, go to Psalm 23, please. And by way of introduction, I'm just going to say something to the young people in here. This week I read an article uh, online from Standard Reason. It's an apologetics ministry. And um, the article had to do with uh, the compromise that happens in the church and that it will continue to increase. And essentially what he's pointing out in the article is that there are so many young people that when they leave home, go to college, they don't return to church. They just don't. Um, and uh, in the survey that was taken in a book that was written, um, the main reason why they leave, are you ready, is because they have doubts about the Christian faith and they do not believe that it is objectively true. What I want you to hear today is this, is the reason they came back to church, maybe in their 30s or whatnot, was not because Christianity was true, but because of some felt need that they had. Their family members uh, encouraged them to come back. Um, they got married, so they, they, you know, they're going to have kids, so they want to make sure they're raising their kids in church. Okay? Um, for many, many different reasons. But the key reason why they left is not why they came back. They do not think that Christianity is true. And I just want you, you younger people right now to hear this and don't forget it. If this is not true, if what we are doing here on Sunday is not true, we are all wasting our time. We are paying Uncle Joe way too much money. What a joke. We are literally wasting our time. But, but if this stuff is actually ultimate truth, if, if Christ is really the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through Him. If that, in fact, is true, then there is nothing more important that you or I can um, give our lives to knowing and proclaiming and living 
All right? That's for another time. That's another sermon. We've got a different sermon this morning. The reason I say that is because I've been dealing with a lot of anger, okay? Now, a lot of times our anger is not uh, good. It's unrighteous. But sometimes our anger is righteous. You know, the Bible does command us to hate what is evil and to cling to that which is good. Well, when, when, when we're talking about what is the standard of good, Scripture reveals God is the ultimate standard of good. All goodness is defined in Him. So, there is a time to get angry. And I've uh, been around and I've been seeing people leaving the faith, uh, whether away from Christ or to another religion that purports to be the true one, and, and is a caricature of, of, of the God of the Bible, of the Jesus of Scripture. And it's angered me uh, on several, uh, personally it's angered me because of loved ones that I see, um, their lives are being destroyed, that if they do not repent and come back to the fountain of life who is Christ, they will perish because of their own hard-heartedness. Secondly, uh, it's angered me because of, quite frankly, my own sloth in opening up my mouth and telling people about Christ and getting in their faces. Not in a, in, in a um, uh, you know, unkind way or whatever, but being bold. And I see that that's been a trend in, in a lot of our lives, um, uh, you know, in the church, church-wide. And what the problem is this, if Christianity is not true, if we cannot champion the issue of truth, we have nothing to say to the culture. Nothing. We will be as we have been marginalized. Our voice will mean nothing. It'll just be white noise. So I come to you this morning from a lot of angst. Uh, personally, and but I see it culturally, I see it in the church. And um, so this morning, I, I just want this to be known, okay? What we're going to read right now is actually true. Hopefully, I'll be able to declare it and explain it faithfully. There's actually an intended meaning in this text, which means I can't make up what it means. And thirdly, that means that if this, in fact, is the Word of God, we do well as believers and seekers to consider what it's saying. So this morning, Psalm 23, I titled the message, The Lord Shepherds His People. Now, I remember in 1981, Christ's love absolutely overwhelmed me. Uh, I became a Christian, and where I once felt like there was no hope I felt complete and utter despair, uh, sadness, etc. God replaced it with His joy, with His hope. Um, he became my Savior. He became my shepherd. This God who created the heavens and the earth became my shepherd, my Savior. His love overwhelmed me. There were times I would come home after working at my dad's gallery and I would come home, put on a record, and just sob. 
I would sob because I was so overwhelmed by God's kindness toward me and His love toward me. I remember two weeks span, every day I'd come home and I'd bawl my head off. I could not believe that this God would love somebody like me. And I was, a, I was not very lovable. Um, and I found my soul delighting in this God. I found my soul uh, 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 enthralled in this shepherd when I would read the passages of Scripture. I couldn't believe that this was really real, that this was really true. And um, caused my heart caused my heart to overwhelmingly give thanks. Something happened. Something happened in my life. Well, when it comes to this passage, Psalm 23, it has universal appeal. Uh, you, you watch a movie, you know, at a, at a funeral grave site, you see people reading what? Psalm 23. Uh, when my dad died and we had his funeral, the, the obituary at the end of it had Psalm 23. Uh, when I did a, a, um, a, a officiated a, 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 um, a funeral, a, a ceremony, a gravesite for a soldier, uh, I didn't know what the last things I was going to say. It's just, just go to Psalm 23. It's like I went to Psalm 23 and it just kind of like took off from there. But so this, this psalm has universal appeal. Um, it is a psalm of God's strength and grace for all the ages. Now, whether we're at the dawn or twilight of our lives, this psalm is extremely reassuring for us as His people. So I don't care if you're young, but the older you get, the more in touch you get with the preciousness of this. That's been my experience. Now, the context of this uh, psalm its original setting is really hard to uh, figure out. We're not sure. There's general agreement that it's a psalm of trust and confidence. And some scholars see it as a psalm of thanksgiving, while others see it as a psalm that's a, called a royal psalm. It's a uh, King David, the shepherd of Israel. Therefore, it's the psalm of David. But the structure of the psalm has the Lord as, his, as the shepherd of His people in verses 1 through 4. And as the host of his people in verses 5 through 6. And while the metaphors show us an aspect of God's dealings with his people, his covenant people, um, the theme, the prevalent theme here is his care and his goodness, which he lavishes on his people. So, first of all, we're going to see three things here that the Lord shepherds his people with provision, protection, and hope. And I know each and every one of us in here need provision, protection, and hope. Let's read. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord.
forever. Verses 1 through 3, we see that the Lord shepherds His people with provision. First and foremost, the word, the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This word, Lord, the term Lord, is the covenant name of God that He revealed to Moses in the wilderness. And specifically, He reveals His name, this name to Moses, after Moses got angry and threw down the tablets. After he had a temper tantrum with Israel because of their idolatry. Let me read that to you. Chapter 34 of Exodus, starting with verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two stones tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. I want you to notice something. Where God is revealing his kindness and goodness, he is giving his word. Please do not miss that. He is revealing who he is to his people. He is the God who is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now when, this, when, those, um, when the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, he's exclaiming an intimate relationship and he emphasizes my he emphasizes my shepherd. Why is this important? Well, because Israel was accustomed to speak only of the Lord as our Lord. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the Lord our God. See how personal this is? This is in the Old Testament, folks. This is in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. It's revealing how personal he is. But not only that, God is not just the God of a community in Hebrew, but he is the God of individuals. He is the God of individual people. He is your God. If he's your treasure, he's my God. If he's my treasure... This is very, very personal. And he's aware that God has his eye on him. The Lord is my shepherd. I want to point out just a little contrast here. He's not an impersonal force. 
He is not a God who can't be known. Allah is one. He is not a God who is one of many. Allah, polytheism, and the many Hindu gods. He is not a God who is far removed. Allah, the deists who said that God was so transcendent, He just wound up this creation and let it go and we're on our own. He's not like that. He is not a God who is finite. No. He is a God who is creator. He is a God who is revealer. He's creator of everything. He's revealer of anything that we can know. He reveals it, whether it's in Scripture or whether it's in nature. He is a God who is one and only. He is the one and only God. He is not only transcendent, but He's also eminent, which means that He is near. He's here. And He is infinite, which means, among other things, that He has no beginning or end. He depends on nothing for His existence. Everything else does. So this is the Lord that David, the psalmist, is addressing. And he's saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, if David is indeed the author here, this is fascinating. We're to understand that even though he's referred to as the shepherd king, ultimately he recognizes Who's the power behind the throne? It's not David. It's the God of heaven and earth. It's not him. David recognizes that he is not the one who is ultimate. God is. Now, when God is not referred to as a distant king or deliverer or even as an impersonal rock here, we need to understand that he is pointing out the care and love of this personal shepherd who is creator, but who is also lover of his soul. I shall not want. I shall not want. Is the consequence or the reason why the psalmist doesn't lack anything. In other words, because the Lord, and who the Lord is, cares for me, I don't lack anything I need. The term want doesn't have to do with what you desire. No, the term want has to do with lacking what is necessary. Paul in the New Testament in Timothy talks about be careful not to become lovers of money. And what he says is, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear, kind of like what Jesus said. We brought nothing into the world. Surely we will take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we, with these things, we shall be content. Why? Because the Lord is our shepherd. That's a battle. Every one of us in here, to one degree or another, battles that. We just do. We live in fear of one thing or another. This week, I had an MRI. I'm going, boy, Lord, I hope I don't need back surgery. Because what does that mean? That means no work. Where's the money going to come from? 
how is this even going to happen? The welfare of my family. What does that mean? How will that translate into in the, in the welfare of my wife's uh, personal sanity and well-being? Not to mention my children's and, and my church, my people that love me. How will that impact them? It's scary. MRI came. It's okay. I don't need surgery. Thank God I don't need surgery. But really, when it's all said and done, if we are His, if the Lord is our shepherd, nothing can separate us from His love. Now, I know David in Psalm 23 didn't have in mind, you know, Romans, okay, chapter 9, uh, didn't have in mind, didn't know what we know after Christ. But the fact of the matter is this. This is God's Word. And Jesus is the full revelation of everything that God is and what God promised. And so when we're talking about the shepherd, I want you to keep Jesus in mind. But when he's saying, I shall not want, we're not going to lack anything. We're not going to lack anything that we need. Food and shelter. But even if I lack that, Paul in Romans says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And one of them had to do with food and clothing. Ultimately, even death can't separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Do you struggle with that? Do you have a difficulty believing that God is out for your best interest when you're experiencing tremendous turmoil at home or at school or with work or the lack of it or with a wayward child or with a loved one's life being taken brutally Does that challenge your understanding of the love of God? I forget which psalm says this, but it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, delight yourself in the Lord. When you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires are changed. Your desires become hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your desires, because you're feeding on God in a sense, metaphorically, you want more of God. You want more of Him. The psalmist understands that he who has the Lord, Yahweh, the possessor of all things, has everything. Has everything. If I were to ask you, how many phones do you have in your family? You would probably have more than one. If I were to ask you, how many cars do you guys have in your family? You probably got more than one. If I were to ask you, how many TVs you got in your home? You probably got more than one. If I were to ask you, is your refrigerator empty? It's probably not. If I were to ask you, do you have at least one 
shirt and pair of pants. You probably got a boatload in your closet, shoes, etc. Bikes, more than one, probably. Skateboards, etc. The point is this: we got so much stuff. We got so much stuff. I don't think we can appreciate what's going on here. I have not grown up in a village, in a part of the world, where we can't get water. Just water. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to raise crops and herds so that I can feed my family. I go to the store. All of our daily accoutrements, all of the things that surround us in the city, they really um, keep us a lot of times from coming to terms with the realities that, that this text is talking about. You and I, at least right now, aren't um, having to you know, guard our homes with uh, you know, guns looking for you know, who's wanting to come and loot our house because there's chaos, because there is a, a government that has completely gone berserk and uh, is taking uh, advantage of those that are weak. We, well, I, I haven't experienced that. The movie Hotel Rwanda, how many of you saw the movie Hotel Rwanda? Yeah. None, I haven't experienced that insanity, that godlessness to such a degree that human life is completely and totally dispensable like a paper cup of coffee horrible. I haven't experienced that. Let's go on. And I want you to know that because the Lord is the psalmist's shepherd, everything else follows. Because the Lord is the God of creation, everything holds in His hands. Note this, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And this, this, is, this is a metaphor that explains the care, the tender care of God. Have you experienced God's tender care? God is the cause of the care. God is the cause of the care, not the sheep. This combination of green pastures and quiet waters is a depiction of God bringing refreshing care to the soul of the believer. How many of you love the great outdoors? How many of you love going to the great outdoors? How many of you want to experience more and more of the great outdoors? Okay, not too many of you. Some of you, but wow. That's, that's sad. Let me tell you why I think it's sad. No, th those of you, hallelujah, but those who haven't, let me sh share personal experience. Um, when I go to the mountains, for example, and I get away from all the noise, something happens to my soul. All of a sudden, I am surrounded by something that's way more majestic than the buildings that men make. Not that buildings men make aren't majestic. It's not the point point is, those buildings one day will be gone. Much like 
my old neighborhood on Hubbard Street where the streets were completely and totally straight. Now they have all of these round medians in the middle so people can't cross the street uh, where we used to uh, ride our, our, um, our stingrays, our Schwinn stingrays. It was an empty lot. It's, you know, there's houses there. Um, so it doesn't stay the same. Nothing stays the same. But one thing that does stay the same for the most part are the great outdoors. You go to Yosemite, you see El Capitan, even though it's deteriorating a little bit, it's still there. It's been there for thousands of years. Half Dome, it's been there for thousands of years. It's, it's steady. What, is, what, what does that point to? I think it points to the steadfastness of God. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, heaven and earth will pass away. But not the least stroke or letter will pass away from the law until all has been fulfilled. So assuredly as the heavens are above us and the ground is beneath us, so much more is the faithfulness of God's word because it is a reflection of who God is. Well, let me tell you, you go to some of these national parks, you go to a place like Yosemite or the High Sierras, and all of a sudden, you experience mental healing. It's the only way I know how to express it. Something happens. The beauty, the beauty of the creation heals. Just does. Non-believers experience it. That's the goodness of God. Well, God leads us into places that restore us into places that build us up. He makes me lie down in green pastures. God is the cause of the care, not the sheep. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. He not only, not only shall I not want, not only does He make me lie down in green pastures, and not only does He lead me beside quiet waters, he restores my soul. What's he talking about? Same thing he's talking about in Psalm 19. It's the same word. The word has to do with the effect the law of the Lord has on the soul. When we're talking about God restoring the soul, it comes through the special revelation of God here. And specifically, he's talking about the immaterial part of who he is. He restores my soul. It's that part of you that nobody knows unless you reveal through your communication. He restores it. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, when God is restoring the soul, it means that He is restoring the whole person, the whole being. Whatever He begins, He completes, unlike so many of us. Whatever he does, all things that he does, he does them well. And whatever he begins, it is good. He completes it, it is good. Through his word, he restores the soul. This has to do with turning the heart back to God. Where's your soul, saint? Where's your heart, Justin? Neil? 
Sergio, Tony, Summer, where is your soul? How have you done this last week, month, year? Have you been cultivating a relationship with him through his word that is causing your heart to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or have you been so bogged down with the cares of this world that you can't see straight because you've ignored him? scriptures, the scriptures, the scriptures cause the entire person to live a life that you were designed to live. There's a design to how we are supposed to live and flourish. Why is it that so many of our lives are just falling apart? Why is it that it's so difficult for us to relate to each other, be it spouse, child? Human to human. Why is it so difficult? We're broken. We're broken. But the Lord, who is the shepherd, he heals that. He does. Heals it through his word. Heals it through his spirit. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Verse 3. He guides me in paths of righteousness. It occurred to me where he guides me. He doesn't guide me to a porn site. He doesn't guide me to beat my spouse. He doesn't guide me to be slothful at work. He doesn't, he doesn't guide me to be unfeeling of the plight of those who are hurting. He doesn't guide me to shut up when injustice is being done. He does not guide me a lot of times to be at ease. But he does lead me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. This speaks of God making sure that we, his people, fulfill what he expects of us. If you are looking for grandeur and awe, and uh, wonder in the mirror, you are going to be very, very, very dissatisfied because of the nature of who you are. You're a creature. You're not the creator. Biggest problem we have, even from the garden, is we do not want to live God-centered lives. We want to live man-centered lives or people-centered lives or women-centered lives, whatever. We want to be the masters of our own destiny. The problem is we can't be because death reminds us all how finite we truly are. 
And so when we're talking about God guiding us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake, we're talking about the effects of new birth. New birth. New birth affects a life that hungers for God. New birth does not just come in words, but it also comes in deeds. It comes in a life lived out. It is demonstrated through a life lived out, not mere words. The center of which, how we ought to live, is what God has revealed. What road are we traveling on? What path are you on? Do you think this morning's a joke? Are you bored? Are you grateful that we're here? Where are you at? What have you resolved for your life? Are you going to continue to go on and meandering if in fact that's what you're doing? In, in that which cannot satisfy? Or are you going to look to the one who alone is life? Are you going to look to the shepherd? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, in light of God's mercies, where Paul is arguing for God's choosing who he wants to choose, having mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, chapters 9 through 11. In chapter 12 of Romans, verses 1 through 2, he says this, in light of God's mercies, live however you want, man. You prayed, you prayed the quote-unquote sinner's prayer, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Biblically, that's not the sinner's prayer. Sinner's prayer, biblically, is Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a sinner's prayer. But regardless, you think just because you said a prayer that everything, that you can live any old way you want, if that prayer was sincere and new life actually took place, what the Spirit of God produces in you is not wickedness. It's righteousness. Always. He leads us in paths of righteousness for whose name's sake? For His name's sake. Why for His name's sake? What's the big deal? Why does God always have to be the center of everything? Well, I mean, well, if He is the author of life and all things that exist consist in Him, He upholds all things by the word of His power, what kind of a question are you asking? It, it just sounds a little absurd in light of who he is and who we are. No, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And Micah says, he has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. Those are paths of righteousness. The sheep are not left to their own devices. 
And if you're his, you're not alone. If you're a single mom, you're not alone. If you're a widow, you're not alone. If you're a child and nobody in your family believes, you're not alone. You're not alone. If you're in a difficult marriage, you're not alone. If your family has disowned you because of Christ, you're not alone. You're not alone. But you feel alone, don't you? You feel alone a lot of times, don't you? God's going to assure that those who are His are going to go on the right path. (laughs) Kid you not. He's the perfect father. He's a good dad. When he sees an erring child, he'll get him back. He'll do it in his wise way, but he'll do it. He does it for his name's sake. Now, the name of God reveals the person of God, who he is. Uh, His name is the solemn guarantee by covenant that he will fulfill all his promises. If you remember that God, when he swore to Abraham, he swore by who? By himself. There's no one greater to swear by. In 1 John, talks about God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. Why? Because he doesn't change. And if we, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. There's something God can't do. He can't deny himself. Another thing God can't do, he can't lie. But he's all-powerful. So for his namesake, God's goodness is God-centered necessarily because he is the author of life. You understand that? God's goodness is God-centered necessarily. It has to be because he's the author of life. Cannot be any other way. So God, the Lord, Yahweh, his tender kindness and mercy toward his people, demonstrates His faithfulness and His character. There is no greater place where you're going to see the justice of God and the love of God than on the cross of Christ. It's on that cross that you see the justice of God, that He does not wince at sin. Sin must be paid for, but also the love of God. He loves the lost. So the Lord shepherds his people with provision. He does all this stuff. And the Lord also shepherds his people with protection. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This shadow of death is not good. Now, Psalm 27 says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Why? Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my shepherd. 
probably a lot of anxiety represented in this place right now. This is a call to trust which produces rest for your soul. The shadow of death, it's a, it's a deep shadow. It's, it's an allusion to the exodus and the wandering that Israel experienced in the wilderness. Have any of you been out in the desert alone? Have you ever been in the desert, in the middle of the desert? The vastness can be overwhelming and exhilarating at the same time. Imagine not having any water, any food. Do you think Israel complained for no reason? The people, man. Where are we going to get water? God provided water. Where are we going to get food? God provided manna. Where are we going to get meat? God provided birds. And still, God's provision for most of them was not good enough. Is that who you are? Is that who I am? The psalmist's confidence rests on God's protection in the midst even of death and it's because the Lord is present listen to what he says even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death verse 4 second part I fear no evil for you are with me your rod and staff they comfort me so this rod this staff these were tools that the shepherd used to count them, to fend off wild beasts, to protect them. The valley of the shadow of death. You know, every one of us in here is going to die. And I think, you know, in the culture we live in, the last thing we ever want to contemplate is our own death. And why not? If there is no God. If there is no afterlife. What's the meaning to my life? Why not? Why not fear it? There's that pit in the stomach of everyone who contemplates their own death. There's like this abyss bottomless abyss in the soul that only can be rescued by God. That's why when I started off and said, if Christianity is not true, we have nothing to say. Christianity is not true. We should be pitied more than anybody else in the South Bay Area, those of us who believe that Jesus Christ actually is who he said he was through the apostles, that he rose again from the dead, conquered death, and he's coming back. We are of all men most to be pitied if in fact that is not true. Do you see how relevant this is? So the Lord shepherds His people with protection. What do you fear? 
What do you fear? The Lord shepherds his people with protection. The Lord shepherds his people with hope. Verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now here the imagery changes. Here goes uh, one from a present reality to a future feast, to a future banquet. So God is provider, protector, and now he is host. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He shepherds his people with hope. How can it be real hope that has any substance if he's not real? If I hope in that which is not real, I'm hoping in a fantasy, right? If I'm, think about this. If I'm hoping to have a great conversation today, you know, at dinner with, let's say, Buzz Lightyear, I'm going to be disappointed unless I'm hallucinating and I'm, I'm not in the real world. That's not the real world. No, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This whole issue of table, the psalmist is anticipating something in the future. And he does this by referring to the past. And he recalls God's provision in Psalm 78, 19. I'm not going to go there. The point is this. God is not a killjoy. Life is hard, but a day's coming. There's a banquet coming. There's a banquet coming. There's a day coming for those who are Christ where the tears will be wiped away from our eyes. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow because the former things will be passed away and the new heaven and the new earth will be consummated, real. We're passing by. Our, our lives are but a vapor. What are we doing with it? How do you deal with fear? How do you deal with disappointment? Both that you give out and those that you receive. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with coming to terms with who you really are? When you realize, man, I could be really cruel to my siblings. Or, my gosh, I'm very thoughtless of my wife. Or, my gosh, I don't feel like I'm cutting it. What do you do? You go to the shepherd. You run to the shepherd. You place your hope in who he is, what he has done, what he has promised he will do. You, in one word, fall in love with Jesus. Stay in love with Jesus. Till your dying last breath. Stay in love with Jesus, you guys. Don't let your heart grow cold. Don't let your heart grow cold. You know, the one thing that really got to me about Jesus 
when I first became a Christian was that I knew he would never leave me. I knew he loved me in spite of me, and I knew I was safe. How I knew it, I just God just showed me through his word, through my own personal experience, that the only one who is faithful and will always be faithful is none other but the Lord himself. I will let you down. Sure, I already have let you down. You and him. Um, it's just the nature of the beast, the human. So how do you deal when you're dealing with serious, the real? Is my wife going to make it through a surgery? That's a real fear. What does that mean to raising six kids? How are we going to do this? What do I do with this anxiety in light of those thoughts that want to swallow me up? I go to you, Lord. I go to you. What do I do about a past that's so shameful I never even want to talk about it? cleanse me. I go to you, Lord. I go to you. Any means. It's kind of difficult to interpret. But perhaps when he's saying, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, perhaps it's safe to assume that the psalmist endured much affliction at the hands of enemies that had risen up against him. I mean, this is a Psalm of David. My gosh, read First and Second Samuel. You want to see a life of turmoil? A life where God anoints him as king, but uh, the, the present king doesn't realize it. He doesn't appreciate it, and when he realizes it, wants to kill him. A guy who's got to flee for his life because of this? Maybe some of you in here have experienced having a bounty on your life. I haven't. I can't imagine how frightful that's got to be. How in the world do you, you sleep? David experienced that. His enemies. Who were his enemies? Those who want to take his life. Do we have enemies? Yeah, we do. There are those who want to shut us up, who think we are the most hateful human beings on the face of the earth because we have a particular view on marriage, for example, that it's between a man and a woman. Now I'm a hater um, because I don't agree that homosexuality is right. Now I'm a homophobe. Um, because I don't believe that um, the Jesus Christ of Joseph Smith I hate. Uh, because I say that Muhammad is a false prophet. 
and all others are not the way? We have a ton of enemies. Don't think you don't have enemies. You have so many enemies, they're, just, they're all over. So what do you do? <laughs> Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You pray for them. You love them. Pray for God to have mercy on them. And you live a life, you live a life that's worthy to be emulated in the power of the Spirit. You got enemies. I got enemies. Verse 5. You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. And here the psalmist seems to be presently partaking in thanksgiving. He is overflowing with joy. Why? Because God has provided. God is the provider. He's the protector. This has been his experience in life. This isn't just a nice poem. This poem came out of blood, sweat, and tears. The experience of the past and the present gives him confidence for the future. Does your experience in your Christian walk give you hope for the future? Have you had a true encounter with the living God? If you have, you've got a past with him. Draw on those victories. Draw on, on God's faithfulness to you in the past. Don't forget. Verse 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and loving kindness are forever mine. Why? Because God demonstrated His covenant love and mercy in the past to Israel in their redemption, and He has to us in the new covenant through Christ. So this goodness, this loving kindness continues in the future forever and ever. Remember when Jesus dealt with the Sadducees? They didn't believe in a resurrection. Talking about a woman who had, you know, a scenario of I don't know how many husbands, five different husbands. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Jesus said. Um, you are mistaken. Number one, cut to the chase. You are mistaken because you do not know the Word of God. No, what was it? Now I'm drawing a blank. Help me. You do not know the power of God. The Word of Oh, God damn, I can't remember this. You are mistaken because, oh gosh. Anyway, they didn't know what they were talking about, and they didn't get that God is all-powerful because He said this. He, he, they didn't understand the Scriptures. Because he said, God is not the God of the living, but of the dead. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't know that, guys. You try doing that here. Man. So I lost my train of thought. But the bottom line is this. The psalm is simple. But it is profound. 
There's a difference between memorizing Scripture and it gripping us in such a way that we eat and breathe and sleep and drink it. Where the God of Scripture really is the God who really has a hold of us. It's simple, it's profound, but it's also important for understanding the substance of the gospel. This Lord, who is the shepherd, John 10, I am the good shepherd, I laid down my life for the sheep, Jesus said. This shepherd, king, is Christ the Lord. Now, David didn't know it, but we know it now. It's Christ the Lord. And I go back to what I said earlier. If Christianity is not true, because Christianity is about a person, it's not just a bunch of teachings on how to be this way or that way. Ultimately, it's about a person. The God-man, the Messiah, who was promised through the prophets. Christ Jesus the Lord. He changes everything. So if you do not think that this is true, you got some homework. Because there's a ton of information that's already been dealt with the last 2,000 years that'll refute whatever objection you have. That's a bold statement, but whatever. It's true. Take it or leave it. Hopefully you'll take it. Hopefully your, your faith, your Christianity will not be this thoughtless, glib, reed-like, can be blown by the wind here and there, kind of a Christianity that has no backbone. But hopefully your Christianity will be rooted in the God of creation who has revealed himself in creation. Everything he made was good. His creatures rebelled. He wrote a book showing how the redemption would take place, ultimately in Christ Jesus, and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. First Peter, I'm going to end with this. First Peter chapter 2. The epistle of Peter. If you haven't heard Pastor Joe's sermons on Peter, I really encourage you to hear it. It is an epistle of hope for those that are suffering, grounded in the living hope who is Christ the Lord. And in this context, I want to read this to you. Uh, starting with verse 20 to 25. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? None. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He's talking to the flock and he's saying, hey, I've called you to holiness. In, in, in the context of suffering. Anybody can suffer if they've done wrong. Big deal. But if for righteousness sake you've suffered, this finds favor with God. It pleases Him. It honors Him. It preaches to those looking at our lives. The gospel. And who is this great shepherd? It's Christ the Lord. So he's talking to the, to the flock, but now to the shepherds, here's what he says to the shepherds. Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus, he is the shepherd. He's the shepherd of the flock, and his reward is with him. It is coming. When we're talking about this psalm's simplicity and, 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 and depth, I don't want you to miss the fact that the Lord does shepherd us through provision. He provides what our soul needs. Through protection, even in the darkest days, And he gives us hope. There's a future coming. Who will you be? Will you be calling him Abba? Will you be calling him Daddy? Will you be saying, you are my shepherd? Or will you be crying for the mountains to fall on you for fear of his wrath? I pray the former, not the latter, be our reality. And Lord, what can be said? We are broken, but you are the shepherd. You are the tender, loving shepherd. You guide us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. May you do that in our lives today. May you do that in the life of everyone that's here. And I ask that you do it. Do it for your name's sake. Show yourself strong on behalf of your people. Keep your eyes closed. If you are a believer and you would say, you know, it's been hard for me to experience what you've said about God being my shepherd. I haven't, I've been feeling dry. I've, I've experienced uh, anything but uh, uh, solace and, and, and peace as a result of being in God's presence for X, Y, and Z reasons. But I want that. 
I want you to raise your hand. Father, you saw those hands. I ask right now, by the power of your spirit, that you would be experienced by my brothers and sisters as the shepherd. Really, Father. Really. As the shepherd who is there, tenderly caring, guiding, protecting, nurturing, even in the midst of fears and doubts, pains, do that, I pray.